Uh, we're coming here in our exposition of Hebrews after 12 chapters of, of lifting high and exalting Jesus again and 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 giving us reason to love Him and to follow Him. And after warning us repeatedly of the consequences of failing to follow Him, we now come really to a practical chapter. It's just raw exhortation. It is raw commandment um, call for a for a life that would honor Him. It gives us a picture of what uh, a Christian life should be like. It gives us a picture of the Christian community. Beginning last week, looking at the issue of love. Uh, told to love the brethren, love the strangers, love the persecuted. That's the character of those who follow Jesus, is love. And we love others, and we love others deeply, and we love others sacrificially. This morning, we're going to address, um, just for the sake of time, two other areas of our life, marriage and money. There's hardly anything more consistent basis in my life than my marriage and then my money. Um, Think about just how often I talk with Yvonne and uh, deal with her and deal with our children and just life surrounds Marriage every day. And for those of you who are married, that is the same thing as well. Uh, and then also money. I mean, we, we have that on a daily basis. We have to decide what we spend, how we spend, um, where we give, where we keep, what we, what we do. And these are two issues in our life that, that just come up again and again. And uh, they come up in our text. And my prayer is that we might be helped in both these areas in our life to live a, a way that's really pleasing to the Lord in both of them. So let's, let's read the text, and I trust you can see marriage and money. Verse 4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Well, I remember in seminary, one of the times we had a visiting speaker come and speak to us. And he was a man who had experienced the ministry. I don't, don't remember who exactly he was even. don't remember his name. don't remember what he talked on. But, but he, he talked on this thing which I have seen come up many times since then. He talked about the pitfalls of ministry. And they're the three G's, which are the pitfalls of ministry. Girls, gold, and glory. And I remember the outline, and I've heard it since then, and I don't remember much more of what he said, but, but girls, the seduction of women away from the calling of, of men in the ministry as a father, as a role model. The seduction of the gold, the seduction of wealth, which pulls our hearts away from heaven and down to this earth keeps us here the seduction of glory, which is the seduction of power and influence where someone thinks begins to think himself more important than anything else that goes around and begins to run the, the church as if it all revolved around him. And these are pitfalls for any ministry. In fact, you look at scandals in the church, uh, you look at scandals in the, uh, uh, the political scene, they all resolve around these things. It's either a sexual scandal with women, or it's a, it's a money scandal with the gold, or it's a power scandal with the abuse of everything taken care of there. And girls, gold, and glory. And, and this morning, we're going to look at the first two with the seduction of, of girls, just as a, a pitfall there, of uh, just uh, marriage and how to, 
how to be pure in that, how it's important that we stay pure. And then the gold, the money comes in verses 5 and 6. And next week even we will look at ministry as well. So it begins in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you. Right? Look at those who are ministering to you and remember them, considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. In contrary to verse 9, don't be carried away by, by very strange teachings. Right? So it's got some ministry aspects there as well. But this week it's marriage and money. My message entitled is Avoiding the Pitfalls of Life. Um, it's the best I come up with, but just there's a, there's a warning here to make sure our marriages are what they ought to be. Make sure we as a church are cheering on marriage and for our money. Make sure that we are, are free in our character from the love of money. Make sure that we spend and trust God uh, appropriately. So let's look at marriage first. Verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I have three observations from this text. You might sort of command, sort of not. But first of all, marriage is to be honored. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but right there, marriage is to be held in honor among all. That is that we should uphold the institution of marriage. We should uphold those who are marriage. We should honor husbands and honor wives and honor fathers and honor mothers. How appropriate was it for us this day on Father's Day to honor fathers. Phil, you did an excellent job of that. We just, it's your idea to pass this booklet out to all of you fathers to be spiritual leaders in your home, to catch and understand just what prayer is. And it's good for us to recognize family. It's good for us to recognize God's purpose and plan for family. I mean, this is one of my visions for Rock Valley Bible Church, that we would be filled to church with solid families where husbands would love their wives like Christ loved the church and where husbands would give themselves in complete service and sacrifice to their families, to their wives and to their kids, not to their own hobbies and hobbies and their own lusts and passions, right? Where they're off doing their own thing. But no, husbands would really give of themselves. And marriages here where wives respect their husbands and joyfully serve their husbands as Christ loves and serves the church, where, where mom and dad are happy and content, where children grow up in homes saying, I want a marriage just like mom and dad, and then would follow after that. And, uh, you know, we, we have a great um, opportunity for that. There's strong marriages here for sure. We ministered in, in vacation Bible school to a lot of families who plan out did not have that. And I just know I've been praying this week, even that some of them might visit today. I don't see any among us here today, but just been praying earnestly that, that God would give us some families that we can really minister to and really help and change from being a wreck right now to being something that's God honoring because we honor and love marriage. We want to be models of that. Not in an arrogant way, but just so there's some strength that we can minister to each other and minister to others who might come in and visit us. Yvonne and I are working hard on that. 19 years coming this summer. Uh, we've been married. Happy 19 years. Yvonne means more to me than any of you know. She helps out with me and the church more than you will, will ever know. She is a helper to me for sure. And to honor marriage is to speak high of, of marriage. To speak high of our husband. To speak high of our wives. And so I would really encourage to, to do that, to tell others of the joys that you've experienced in your marriage, to tell others of the happiness you have in marriage. And I'm not telling you to lie, okay? I'm telling you to make marriage a happy place that then you can, can share that and, and tell that to others. You, you know, there are some jokes about marriage which don't honor 
marriage. Um, they are certainly funny, and they they address some flaws in some marriages. Um, but I don't think they they honor marriage. They, they they more tend to take the institution down. And I I hesitate sharing some of these, but uh, I just want to kind of give you a flavor of the kind of things that can dishonor marriage. Like when, when someone says this, a, a husband is living proof that a wife can't take a joke. You know, even even just even thinking about that just shows that husbands are not doing their job, and a wife is burdened of that. And they say that's what marriage is like. Or some jokes say this, marriage is an institution, but who wants to live in an institution? I mean, there, there's a humor to that, right? It, but, but it is something that just feels like uh, you're bound. Or some say marriage is like a hot bath. Once you get used to it, it's not so hot. Well, I hope at Rock Valley Bible Church, our marriages stay hot. Our marriage means commitment. And of course, one person says, so does insanity. But those are sort of things that, that can, can tear marriage down. And I think we ought to be just people who, who lift up marriage, who, 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 who honor marriage. So you think about, okay, how can I honor marriage? Well, one way is to speak kindly to your spouse. That when you are in marriage, your kids are around you, speak kindly to them. Even if there's conflict, handle it in love, not in rage. Speak well of your spouse. I've spoken with people, I've heard it, seen it done, that men are at work, and what they do, they just complain about their wives. They complain about anything, right? The, the food they cook, the, the mess at home, or this or that. We ought never to speak down to our fellow workers about our wives. Wives, don't speak down about your husbands. Take place too sometimes. Wives are together and they're talking and they're just you know tearing their husbands down. Don't do that. That's just tearing down the institution of marriage. But build it up. And again, don't lie, but so speak and so think of your husband in that way. If you're following Ephesians 5, where husbands, you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church, think of the, the ways in which Christ has expressed His love to the church and they just abound and they are things that we rejoice in that Christ loves us despite our deficiencies. And so, likewise, men, we need to love our wives that way and speak about our wives that way. And wives, you ought to speak about your husbands like we speak of the Lord, right? Wives, to submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ in everything. So, just as we look to Jesus in praise and adoration, praise and honor your husband. Honor those who are married. When you see a marriage, right? Honor that. Speak highly of that. Take great care how you deal also with other married people. Don't spend time alone with other married people. Person's spouse or the opposite sex. You need to be careful how you relate to them. And you need to do everything you can do to honor other people's marriage. That's how affairs actually start, is by, by beginning to spend time alone with some of the opposite sex who someone's married. I read this week of a, a woman named Millie Dinert. She worked with Billy Graham Association for over 40 years, and she talked about the integrity that the Billy Graham Association had just even in dealing with uh, women, things like that in ministry, men and women roles. And she said this, particularly about Billy Graham and Cliff Barrows and George Beverly Shea. She said this, after 40 years of ministry with these men, I've always appreciated from a moral point of view how the men 
have been in their attitudes toward the secretaries. The doors are always left open. There's a high regard for a lack of any kind of privacy where a boss and his secretary are involved. At times, I thought they were going a little bit too far. It's a good thing. Go a little bit too far. That it wasn't necessary, but I'm glad they did it, especially today. We've kept everything above reproach. When you are working on a long-term basis with the same person constantly in hotels where the wife is not there and the secretary is, that's a highly explosive situation. You have to take precautions and I've always respected the way that they have handled that. It's been beautifully done. You just think about the number of ministry scandals there are and how the Billy Graham Association, from what I know, has kept from that. Maybe it comes back and we are called to honor marriage. And yet, you know what? We live in a world that doesn't honor marriage. A um, survey came out this week. I saw it in several different emails. The fact that 62% of people in America believe in traditional marriage. And uh, even one pro-family email I got, and when you talk about traditional marriage, you're talking about just a man and a woman, 62% of America. One email I got says, oh, Americans overwhelmingly recognize natural marriage. Like lifting, like, woohoo, look at this, Americans overwhelmingly, and you start reading down, and you're like, 62%, what does that mean? 62% means 38% on the other side who can't affirm man and woman is what marriage is about. And, you know, in a survey, how, how maybe you've had phone surveys like that, do you, I'll give you a statement, you tell me whether you strongly agree or, or somewhat agree or neutral or somewhat disagree or strongly disagree, right? You've had surveys like that. So kind of on a, a sliding scale. I mean, 62% um, said that they somewhat agree. When you say strongly agree, Americans, 53% strongly agree that marriage is one man and one woman. That's a bare majority in America, even believing in the institution of marriage as the Bible defines it. And over the years, I'm sure this number has gone down and down and down and down. It's just a matter of time before that passes over the 50% mark and then gay marriage be legislated everywhere. Our culture continues to pound away on the issue and they won't stop until it's done. They won't stop until we redefine marriage and thereby dishonor marriage. We live in a culture that's um, that's tearing marriage down. And I just say, let the church of Jesus Christ be the institution that's building marriage up. That's what we're called here. Let marriage is to be held in honor among all. Listen, there's no exception for this. Uh, this, is, this is married or unmarried. This is a child or a grandparent. This is lifting marriage above all. And I, I just say, value marriage. You young people, value marriage. And one way you value something is to really investigate it, study it, know about it, and be careful. Our kids have recently purchased a um, a camera, an SLR camera. And uh, how long have you guys had it? Maybe a month? Two months? And yet before they had it, they were on the internet researching all about SLRs, and SR would say, hey, look at this picture, this thing about SLR, doesn't it look a lot better than this camera? And, and here's all the reasons why we need to get it, and da 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 Why? And, and, and now even they treat their SLR camera like they honor it. Right? They have a special case for it. They talked about getting a lens, uh, a picture covering, right, for the, the picture just so it doesn't get scratched. Oh, we really need some lens cleaning. They're, they're honoring their SLR camera by being very careful. And I say, young people, be very careful about who you marry. Investigate. Think about. Pray about. 
what's going to happen. It's a lifelong decision. Seek counsel, especially from your parents. Right, Asar and Carissa and Hannah? I am listening. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But that's a way to honor marriage is to really think about it, really pray about it, really study it before you get married. We should honor what God's established. And God's established marriage, one man, one woman for life. That's the pattern. Trust you remember the way that God instituted marriage. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? One man with one woman. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage. Two complementary parts coming together to make a whole. Man was created and woman came along as a helper, completely complementary, and her role can never be replaced by another man. Yet people in our culture are trying to do the same thing. They push the same social legislation. They write articles and books. They influence textbooks in our countries. If anyone speaks anything against gays, they are all over that because they want that to be like taboo. You cannot speak against that. Any athlete makes a comment about that. Any politician makes a comment about that. Instantly in the news and they're forced to apologize. They're forced to come back. And people pretty much learn that's a social taboo subject. You can't talk about it. And thereby, they're winning the culture wars. They hold up banners at rallies like the children have on the children. Love plus commitment equals marriage. Well, yes, you need to have love and commitment in marriage, but that's not all. But they just want to reduce marriage to that, but that's not what marriage is about. Defined in the Bible, it is one man, one woman for life. That's what Jesus said, right? When questioned about marriage. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother should be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. One man, one woman for life. That's the way God intended it to be and our culture is trying hard to destroy it. 40% of those being married for the first time will divorce. Half of all marriages, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, tenth marriages, they half, I mean, up to those, half of those marriages all end in divorce. It's a sad reality of our day. It's a sad reality of some of us. It's, it's tearing. I know that is. And a situation where people have been crushed by divorce. We as a church, let's come alongside those people like Michelle. Let's come alongside you. Let's, let's come alongside others. And others have, have gone past that and are on the other side having God-honoring marriages today, having blown it before. But we as a church need to do what we can do, especially with the children, to, to honor marriage. Help, help show them what a, what a marriage can be like so they might taste it and be rescued from the devastation of a next generation, what it might bring. And just know, I, I just need to preach the Gospel here. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. Forgiveness is available to those who repent and trust in Christ. That's what all of Hebrews is about. Lifting high Jesus, the Supreme One, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, the high priest. By His death, He inaugurated a new covenant and by one offering, He is sanctified for all times through the body of Jesus Christ. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, we can enter the holy place divorced or married. We need to but believe in Him. We need to trust in Him. Well, marriage is not only to be honored, marriage is also to be pure. That's straight again from verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It's speaking about sexual purity within marriage. 
Marriage bed is a place of purity. Let nothing defile that place of purity. Um, and again, our society is doing everything it can to destroy the purity of marriage. I mean, it's, imagine this. Take a sack full of dirt. You know, yes, Yvonne purchases some of that from Walmart sometimes just to help our, our gardens. Take a sack full of dirt and rather than put it in a garden, right, just start pouring it out on your bed. Makes it pretty unattractive, right? Just stuffing dirt in your bed. And uh, that's what's happening in our society today. Ever since the 60s, the sexual revolution continues on today. Anybody, any place, any time, the more risky, the better is the philosophy today. Sleeping together before marriage is predominant in our culture. One study said 95% of Americans have done so or are doing so. It means people are coming to marriage with a dirty bed. Once married, other things defile the bed as well. Pornography being a chief culprit. Seeking gratification outside the bed. And flows all sorts of sexual sins. You want to have a pure marriage? Well, follow the will of God for your life. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. And thereby, let's keep the marriage bed pure and enjoyable. I just know how nice it is to walk in in nice sheets, clean sheets, rather than dirty sheets. Marriage is to be honored. Marriage is to be pure. Marriage is to be. Marriage will be judged. That's verse four. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I mean, I trust you see it there. Fornicators are those who sin before marriage. Adulterers are those who sin after marriage. God will judge those who are engaged in that activity. So don't. Don't think that you can commit sexual sin, escape the radar of God. No, there's no stealth in this area. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out if you've dishonored marriage or if you've polluted the marriage bed, if you've gone against the ways of God. God will deal with you. But, but, but listen, when, when He talks here about fornicators, adulterers, God will judge. He, he's, talking about, um, he's talking about those who are unrepentant who are continuing that, who have, who have no, no shame, who see their sin and enjoy it. The case is entirely different for those who recognize their sin, know that it's wrong, confess it before the Lord. In their case, there is complete and free forgiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writing to those who lived just after the day of Jesus. Verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, rather, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, there's the same word again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, there's the same word again, nor effeminate, that's the homosexuals, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God. They will be judged. But then he comes and gives hope. He says, but such were some of you. Because there is hope for those type of sinners and they repent and turn from their sin and come to Christ and are cleansed of that. He says, such were some of you, but in Jesus you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And though the Corinthians at one time were engaged in all types of sinful activity, they repented, turned from their sin and were washed and sanctified through faith in Jesus, justified before God. So if you're feeling the weight today of the moral standard of God in your life, you say, you know what? I've not honored marriage. You know what? I have a polluted bed. And I've engaged in sin before and after my marriage. So know that forgiveness is there. 
Just confess your sins, seek the Lord, and you can wash your sheets and they can be clean. And you can honor marriage once again. And you can be free and forgiven of the sins of the past. The promise of Hebrews is this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's avoid the pitfalls of marriage and the bad ways that marriage can go, but let's lift it high and let's, let's honor marriage. Let's keep it pure knowing what God looks upon those who sin. Well, finally, let's, secondly, let's look at money. It's another pitfall here. And let's just make sure that we are, we are right on track dealing with our money like we deal with our marriage, right? Honoring money appropriately. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Like in verse 4, i got three observations for you again. You ready? First one, don't love money. Again, that just comes right out of the text. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Right? Be free from the love of money, right? So don't love money. Handling money is one of the most tricky things that any of us will ever do. On the one hand, we need it. I mean, without money, you can't live. You can't purchase the things you need. You, you can't have a place to live without money. You can't obtain food or clothes or transportation without money. You need money. And, and yet, the abundance of money brings with it danger. Money can lead us astray. Those with lots of money can easily trust in gold rather than in God. And those with lots of money can easily trust and find their fulfillment in fun rather than in God's faithfulness. Many have fallen down that path. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It makes sense then why the prayer of Proverbs 30 says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. What a great, what a great prayer, right? It acknowledges the need for money and says, God, don't give me too much and don't give me too little. Because if I have too little, I may steal. And if I have too much, I may forsake the Lord because I'm satisfied here upon the earth. But feed me with the food that is my portion. And notice again, the call here in verse 5 is to be free from the love of money. That's the desire to have. And this is where the Bible is so good because it pierces into our hearts and addresses our desires. See, it's not money that is the problem. You can love money and have little of it. In fact, remember back in 1 Timothy, I quoted for you, chapter 6, verse 9. It says, for many wanting to get rich have fallen to a snare. It's not that they were rich, it's they wanted to be rich. And so they didn't have, but still have the love of money and they still... We're snared. And, and you can love money, have lots of it. And likewise, the flip is true. You can have a lot of money and not love it. And you can have little money and not love it. The key isn't whether or not you love money. It's whether money has you. So it's not whether you have money. It's whether money has you. And so you say, how do I know if I have a love for money? Well, here's some real practicals. Listen to your conversations. I mean... If you look at me, it says, make sure that your character is free from the money. Your character comes out in your conversations. What's in your heart comes out of your mouth. 
So what's in your heart? What comes out of your mouth? That's a good question. Is money the primary topic of your talk? Are you always thinking about how to have more? Are you always talking about the things you have? Maybe a problem. Think about your worries and anxieties. Is it all wrapped up in just the, the money and the finances? Think about giving. Are you one who gives generously? Because oftentimes that your giving will express a generous heart. Yvonne said she was just listening this morning to Nancy Lee DeMoss's uh, Revive Our Hearts program. She gets on a podcast on her iPod and uh, listens to it. And she talked about how when Nancy Lee DeMoss was in college, she was given $50 a week allowance by her parents just to spend. And she said she would work really, really hard so as to not spend that $50 each month so at the end of the month she could give it away. So, so in other words, she, she just lived on, on whatever little she do because she wanted to give. And there's a picture of one who doesn't love money but will sacrifice so as to be able to, to give to others. Well, think about your dreams. Do they center around possessions and stuff? Or do they center around relationships in the kingdom of God? I mean, these things will expose the desires of your heart, whether you're loving money or not. And only you can answer that. But a way to prevent a love of money comes in the second half of verse 5. The second phrase there is my second observation. Don't love money, but also be content with what you have. See, and when you're a giver also, you can be content. Mary, Nancy Lee DeMoss was content with what she had because she was trying to get less and less, so she'd give more away. What a great way to live. And whether you have much or have little, the call here is to be satisfied with what you have. Being content with what you have. A businessman was asked, how much money do you need? Just one more dollar. That's all I need. Once that dollar's in the pocket, how much more money do you need? Just one more dollar. And once that's in his pocket, how much more do you need? Just one more dollar. That man will never be content. Paul says here, be content with what you have. And Paul was a great example of this to the Philippians. He said, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned the secret. I have learned to be content whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was content in prosperity. He was content in little. He knew what it was like to be filled. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what abundance was like and he knew what suffering need was like and in all of it, he was content, he was satisfied. And you say, how do you do that? Only through the power of Jesus Christ. He says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Oftentimes, athletes use this verse, right? I can do everything through Him who strengthens me. Look, I can go out and I can win the game. But he's saying this, I can be rich and I can be poor and I can be content because I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. That's what Paul is saying. And so I don't know your circumstances, whether today finds you in abundance or whether today finds you in need, but I do know that you need Jesus Christ for each of those circumstances. I can do all things. I can, I can even be, be humble when there's an abundance to be able to give. And, and I can trust Him when there's a lack. And Jesus Christ can enable you in all your circumstances. So trust Him. Confess your sins. Again, what's interesting here, like in marriage, our society is screaming against this. We are a society of malcontents 
uncontent. You say, Steve, how do you know this? Well, I know this because of the massive debt in the United States. The debt we carry is mind-boggling. $14.5 trillion. It's $46,000 for every citizen in the United States. $130,000 per taxpayer. It's a debt that our nation has. Now, I'm not going to comment on the future, what's going to happen. It's complex. Only God knows how it's going to work out. But I will state the obvious. In order to amass a debt like that, it means that we as a nation are not content with what we have. We borrow to get what we have. We want it now, so we're willing to, to get now and purchase it later. That's what debt is. We've purchased $14.5 trillion of services that we've rendered now and we plan on playing tomorrow. We're like, like what's the guy in Wimpy? I'll gladly pay you for a hamburger today. Right? Wimpy got in debt. And, and, and you need to know this also. The government is a reflection of the people. I mean, we may look at government and you say, oh, it's going so bad. I say, we elected that government. Oh, maybe we in this room didn't, but, but you know what? It's interesting, it's always just that middle 50%, all elections. If you win like 60% in the election, you're landslide. Think about how divided that is. I mean, that, that's just right there, right on the middle. And they represent our desires in Washington. If we really didn't like them, they would all be out. But I say they represent... Our homes because the average household in America is carrying $7,500 in credit card debt. It's people carrying debt because they want now rather than later. And this is a sign that we're not content with the Lord is, is debt. That's what it is. We're not content with what we have. We need something else. And we will, we will get that rather than going without it. Heard someone talk this week about the Great Depression. What are they doing in the Great Depression? You know what? In the Great Depression, this is, this is someone unsigned. People didn't hold debt in the Great Depression. They just did without. And maybe there are a lot of things that we can do without so as to reduce that. But there is a way out. The way out is trusting the Lord. Real quickly, verses 5 and 6. Two Old Testament quotes. And they both call us just to trust the Lord for all this. Being content with what you have for. Here's the reason why we need to be content with what we have. He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Here are two Old Testament quotes that says that God's not going to forsake you. He says the first one comes from the book of Joshua. When Joshua took over the leadership of Moses, he had plenty to fear. A few million people who were often rebellious and resistant. His task was to lead these people to take the promised land of Palestine, which was difficult, the formal task in and of itself. And the Lord said, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua believed that. That was a great assurance to him. And he went and he conquered the land. God came through. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying the same thing. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. And that we have the same God that Joshua had. And just as he didn't fail Joshua when he trusted him, so also will He be there for you if you but trust Him. And so I would encourage you to be content in whatever circumstances you are because Paul promised those in Philippi, my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, same context. I've learned to be content 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And if it's a follower of Jesus, if you believe that he's better than anything this world has to offer, and better than angels and Moses and Joshua and Aaron and all the priests and all the prophets, give me a better sacrifice and giving you a better entrance to the sanctuary through a better covenant, then certainly you can trust him in these ways. God's not going to forsake you. He didn't forsake Moses. He didn't forsake Joshua. And He won't forsake you. That's the truth of Scripture. Second Old Testament quote comes in verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? It comes from Psalm 118, verse 6. It comes in the context of psalmist thanking the Lord for His saving goodness. He said in verse 5 of Psalm 118, from my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. That is a place of ease, a place of safety, rather than a place of terror and difficulty. Later he said, then it's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. And so is true of the riches of life. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in the wealth of this life. And when you understand that, you can, verse 6, confidently say this. You can stand and say, you know what, there are financial difficulties now. There's trials here. But I can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I will guarantee you, none of you in this room will starve. Ever. None of you will go homeless. Ever. You have a place. You have things to eat. You will have clothes. You'll have things given to you. I don't care how destitute you think you might get, you will never lack. The Lord will be your helper. So whether you have much or little, know that God is on your side. You're not going to die. You can be content. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Well, I wanted to close my message this morning a bit differently than normal. Uh, I wanted to call Ray Hook up to uh, just give a testimony of his struggle with credit card debt. Maybe just even to give him a platform, say if you're struggling financially, he's a great one to come and help. He loves helping people with that. Um, I just want to hear his testimony because he's learned some contentment and learned some hard lessons uh, along the way. So Ray, why don't you come up? And then when you're done, Ryan, we can come up and sing our last song. Well, growing up, uh, I was born and raised on a farm. Um, my parents really didn't teach me at all about finances, but in the last uh, two or three years of high school, I had the opportunity to learn about finances by helping my mom with, I was writing computer programs to help her keep track of finances on the farm. So it was kind of by accident where I learned, uh, learned uh, a bunch of things about finances, but one thing that I really learned about finances on the farm was that um, debt was a fact of the farm life. We always went in debt in the spring. We always paid it off in the fall. Go in debt buy seed, buy cattle, go and uh, sell them, har- harvest them in the fall, pay it off, next spring come, go back in debt. So it wasn't really a fact that debt was bad, it was just how to manage it. So now in the college, I had the opportunity that my parents did pay for the majority of my schooling, but I did come out of college with about $10,000 worth of student loans. And uh, like a young man coming out of college, okay, I had a good job, what do I do? Buy a new car. Um, rack up another $12,000. Um, but it was well managed. It was within my means. I could, I could manage that. Uh, Michelle and I met in, met in college, so we knew each other quite well. Uh, we got engaged, and, and um, as coming up, she, and her background in her life was in poverty. She did not have much at all growing up. 
a lot of her schooling was on scholarships, and she amassed a little bit more, about $16,000 in, in student loans. Um, and we were coming up and getting married, and we knew her family could not afford much for the wedding or anything like that. And me being new job and a little bit proud, and didn't want to go to my parents and ask for much. So what do we do? Credit card. Um, put a lot of our wedding on a credit card. Uh, with that, we came up about uh, $8,000 on the credit card with the dress and wedding and things that we could do. Um, overall, when we got married, probably about $40,000 in debt, in consumer debt. Um, still, with the job that I had and the job that Michelle got out of college, it was manageable. But we were never really free. It was, it was something that had a grasp on us. That we, we had to pay this. We had our monthly payments. Working paycheck to paycheck. Um, not really being able to get ahead at all in life. Fast forward about five years, and um, we're now looking at a home or, or had our home around this time, our, our first home. Another $67,000 mortgage now on top of, top of everything. Um, and a good friend of ours, um, close friends of our family, Michelle's uh, friend Janet gave her a book, and don't remember exactly what the name of that book was, um, but it got Michelle really into wanting to do a budget. Well, okay, a budget would be good. I had some background in that, never really worked off of a budget yet at that point, but we started working in budgeting. And then just working in off of that, uh, another book with, uh, from Larry Briquette, uh, Debt-Free Living, and that was one that really changed me, although Michelle's dressed a little bit ahead of that yet. And um, that's where we started figuring, okay, we need to start working out of our, working out of the debt. By that time, our, just with managing debt, it was about $30,000 of consumer debt on top of our mortgage. And it was probably four to five years in our marriage at that point. So about five years time, four and a half, knocked down maybe $10,000 in debt. Uh, when we really started focusing on it and, and trusting God and, and living more towards his word, over the next five years, we took out that 30000 so we were debt-free other than a mortgage. Um, that's where we still had a hard time. We, we um, thought, well, okay, mortgage debt is not a bad debt. We still have much more uh, assets in the house than what we had debt on it. So the house was always worth more. So we didn't seem that as being bad. And we went through with our second house. And then yet even into our third, and we still maintained debt-free living other than that, that mortgage. And after we moved on to Rockford with third third house, we figured, okay, it's this is still a burden on us. It's still got a grasp on us. Let's really work to, to get rid of the mortgage. And as of last March, happy to say we're now mortgage free. Um, so just really being able to concentrate and trust in God and him providing the funds necessary to follow his way and his word um, to be free of debt completely. Um, and maybe to help other people in that area has just been fantastic. So. That's kind of our background and my and my and Michelle's story. So. Ryan.